Hello. Greetings. So glad that you've joined us. So glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. The primary message of the New Testament is the Gospel, which is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his ascension and lordship, and his imminent return and judgment. But we shouldn't miss the importance of those who saw Jesus in life and who testified as the witnesses of his resurrection, the twelve apostles. After all, Jesus did not write anything down himself. He uh, did not leave any written record or any other record of the sort. The record that we have of him is based on the eyewitness testimony of these men who followed him for all those years, who saw him during his ministry, and who saw him in his resurrection. And these are the men that Jesus commissions, that they would be witnesses of these things in Luke 24, and then in Acts 1.18, that they would go out and proclaim them to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. These are the men who would work to turn up the world upside down and were to learn from their examples as they modeled the life of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. So who are these men? Well, first is Simon Peter, the fisherman, the spokesman of the twelve. Then there's John, brothers of James, and they are the sons of Zebedee. They, along with Peter, are the three closest to Jesus. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And the rest of the apostles maybe call them minor nine, uh, of whom we learn comparatively less. Uh, Andrew, the brother of Peter, Philip, Bartholomew, also Nathaniel, Thomas, Matthew, also called Levi, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, also called Judas, son of James, and Simon the Canaanian or Zealot, Matthew chapter 10, Mark 3, Luke 6. And in Acts 1, Matthias would take the place of Judas after Judas killed himself. And so we're spending some time exploring what can be known about these men and what we can learn from them. And today we're going to consider John, the son of Zebedee, an evangelist, an elder, and a letter writer. What do we learn of John as a disciple? How does he develop as an apostle and evangelist? And what can we learn from his example? John, son of Zebedee, in tradition, is considered a younger contemporary of Jesus. He's a brother of James, and they're considered the sons of Zebedee, in fact, in Matthew uh, 4, Mark 1, and Luke 5. Matthew 4, they're fishing. And Mark 1, their dad's Zebedee's with them. And Jesus calls James and John to follow him. And they leave Zebedee there with the nets and go to follow Jesus. We're also told that they are partners with Simon and Andrew in the fishing business. We also see in uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 56, Mark 15 and verse 40, also Mark 16 and verse 1, that uh, Salome is a follower of Jesus. And this Salome is the one who uh, we're, we're, also, we're told is the, the, mother, the, the mother of these sons. and they, uh, She's the one who appeals on her son's behalf in Matthew 20, as we're going to see. Uh, the Salome have been, has been associated with Mary, wife of Clopas, in John 19.25, because there's three women uh, there at the tomb, at the, uh, at the crucifixion, excuse me, and uh, since this Mary wife of Clopas is not mentioned in the other Gospels, but it's called Salome, it is suggested this is uh, perhaps a situation where there's two names. 
And if that's the case, she's also Mary's sister, therefore Jesus' aunt, and therefore John would be Jesus' cousin. Uh, however, that, that is, that's the association where some people get the idea that G, J, James and John are related to Jesus. But as you can tell, it's a very tendentious connection. It's very possible. The, the uh, evangelists do this all the time, where they mention the people that they are interested in. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are the only people present. And so you could just as easily say that Salome is just a different woman. Salome and Sebedee just happen to be different people than the rest here. Um, John and his brother James are called Boanerges by Jesus. It's Aramaic for sons of thunder in Mark 3 and verse 17. He's recognizably Galilean in uh, Acts 2 and verse 7 and other passages. He's definitely Galilean. He is with Peter in Acts 4.13, and they could see that he is ignorant and unlearned. Therefore, he has not received a formal rabbinic education. Now, during Jesus' ministry, there's no indication that John has a wife or child, children. In fact, he alone of all the disciples sees Jesus on the cross, at least in the according to the Revelation. In John 19.25-27, it's John is standing there with, um, with these women. And uh, there is where Jesus commissions him to take care of his mother. Uh, he will later serve as an elder, John 2, 1 and 1, assuming that John is, in fact, the author of 2 John, and which would suggest that he did eventually marry and would have children. Now, according to the best evidence and tradition, John is living around the till the year 95 or so. Uh, that would be the only, uh, and perhaps the only one among the 11 to have died naturally. Um, and that's probably part of the reason why, in ancient traditions, John is seen as a bit younger than the other disciples. If he's born around the year 6 to 10 of our era, that would mean he's around 17 to 22 during Jesus' ministry, and therefore he lives to about 85 or 90, which makes everything seem more reasonable. It explain why he's at the cross as a teenager, perhaps not considered as much of a threat, and how he's able to live to 95 of our era. And so John, son of Zebedee, from what we can tell from the range we can see in Scripture, is like Simon, a first century Galilean Jew. He's part of the unwashed masses. He's an ordinary person who gets caught up in very extraordinary circumstances. As we said, John is called to become a fisher of men at the same time that Jesus calls Simon and Peter, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and his brother James, called right from the nets. He's listed fourth as part of the disciples called to be the twelve in Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6, probably because uh, the evangelists there are pairing off by brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew's brother, and James and John his brother. And the fact that in these positions John is second probably does indicate, he, in that situation, that John is probably the younger brother. Um, he, John, is with James his brother and Simon Peter, part of the three. The three are the ones who tend to see things that even the other disciples don't. They're the ones brought in in Luke 8 to see Jairus' daughter raised. They're the ones who are taken to see Jesus transfigured in Matthew 17. They're the ones in Mark 14 brought closer in Gethsemane. But interestingly, already by Luke 22 and verse 8, Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover. Now the main character attribute that we see from John is in Mark 3.17, Jesus had surnamed James and John the uh, sons of thunder, as we said, Boanerges. Um, it's interesting because in Matthew, he's not. there's not much we see about John. He's there the whole time. He's one of the sons of Zebedee. 
uh, but it's always him and his brother. So we see the things that he and his brother do. We don't see a lot about him. Uh, in fact, Matthew 20, they don't even ask for to be left and right hand in, on, the, on the fathers when, when Jesus enters the kingdom. Their mother asks for them. In Mark and Luke, uh, John and James are kind of pulled out a little bit more, seen a bit more, and they're marked by their boldness. Yeah, a little bit of impetuousness, a lack of patience, and that's why they get their name, Sons of Thunder. In Mark 9, 38 and 40, as well as Luke 9, 49 and 50, we are told the story that John stopped someone who cast out demons in Jesus' name because he was not a fellow disciple. And Jesus says, leave him alone, because those who are not against us are for us. One could imagine John's confusion. Other times, Jesus said, he who is not for us is against us. But in terms of this, if people are using Jesus' name, even if they're not directly following him, and God is praised, Jesus was okay with it. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 55, and this is perhaps the, the, the test case here, where, where we see uh, why John and James are called Boanerges, uh, Jesus is rebuffed by the Samaritans when he's heading down to Jerusalem. They all could tell he was going to go to Jerusalem. And so James and John asked, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven upon them? And Jesus rebukes them sharply, saying, No, don't do that. In Mark 10, 35 and 45, uh, in Mark's version of the story of James and John asking for to be put at the left or right hand of the kingdom, it's actually them themselves asking. And Jesus tells them they don't know what they're asking for. And he asked them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink to be baptized, the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, We are able. And he tells them, My cup you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you'll be baptized. But it is not for Jesus to grant the position of those who are at the left and right hand of Jesus. And this tells us two important things. First of all, uh, we should not really single out James and John here. The other disciples are irritated at them, mostly because they didn't ask first. And secondly, it also happens to show that they felt like they could make that request, that it was obvious that Simon Peter wasn't automatically to consider the number one. And uh, we're going to see that, yes, in the end, they are definitely going to, uh, to manifest this and will drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism. Yet, here, we're still left with John as the son of thunder. A little bit impetuous, a little bit uh, a little more judgmental than you would have expected from what we'll see later. And maybe that's a sign of character development. Now, in John, of course, John is, we believe, writing the Gospel of John. He's never mentioned explicitly. Instead, we hear in John all these stories about the disciple that Jesus loved. John 13, 23, 22, 21, 7, and 20. And uh, we don't really see John mentioned as such. We see a lot of the other disciples. In fact, uh, in John we see more of the other disciples mentioned explicitly than any other of the Gospels. But we're told in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 20, that Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? One of the times he is mentioned as uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved in John 13. Uh, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, about this man? Jesus said to him, If that is, it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true.
So here John identifies himself. In fact, the most identification we ever get of any gospel author. That the one who is writing the gospel of John is the one who claims to have been there when this was going on, to be this disciple. And he's, in fact, saying these things to clarify this report. Uh, that some were saying he won't die until Jesus returns, and he's clarifying, no, he said, if that's my will, what is that to you? He's not trying to say that's what's going to happen. He's just saying, if that's the case, you can't change that. Which sounds suspiciously like a guy who is the last apostle standing, which would make sense with John. So that's part of the evidence that John wrote it. But what it shows us, first of all, is there's some humility there. He doesn't mention himself. He doesn't come, He doesn't say a lot about the things that he did. It, 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 you don't notice that at all. And, and the fact he's talking about himself in this way uh, does show the good standing he has and also the theological emphasis that he's loved by Jesus. And in fact, he's the one at Jesus' bosom there in John 13, which shows a place of, you know, the, at the bosom is uh, where people are reclining and are opposed to each other. Uh, the feet are going different directions, so one's head is near one's bosom uh, of the other person who's reclining at the couch. So that means that John is right there next to Jesus in the Last Supper. It, it also is part of the reason why Da Vinci and others have portrayed John as a little bit as a teenager. Some people think it's a woman, but it's just a younger male. And uh, throughout, there's this emphasis there on, on, on who Jesus is. And uh, notice there, and as we mentioned, John 19, Jesus, John is on the cross. And again, we don't need to be up the other apostles. They may not have had opportunity. They might have been in greater trouble. But John feels f open enough to be able to go there. And John is given a special commission. He is the one whom uh, Jesus turns to and says, and also sees his mother, Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And in that way, uh, John understands that he is to provide for Mary, and in fact takes Mary into his house until his own death. Until her death, excuse me. And um, that might par provide some indication that they are related, and so that is certainly a, maybe some evidence in that favor, but if nothing else, it also shows a deep relationship that they had. So as a disciple, John is paired with his brother James often, and he's known for a bit of impetuousness. What's very interesting is that from here on out, at the end of the Gospels and, and through the book of Acts, John is paired with Simon Peter. In John 18, 15, 16, the other disciple known to the high priest, with whom Simon goes to hear about what's going to happen with Jesus, is believed to be John as well. In John chapter 20, verses 2 through 10, it's Peter and John who run to the tomb. In John 21, it's John who speaks to Peter. The boat says, it is the Lord, and Peter goes and runs off. And as we just read, it is what Peter wants to know is going to happen to John. In Acts 1 and verse 13, we see an interesting shift that Luke makes. Luke earlier has put Peter and Andrew, James and John, but now in Acts 1 and verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew. All of a sudden, there's a big change there, isn't it? It's now Peter, John, James, Andrew. And this is something that continues. In Acts 3 and 4, Peter and John go to the temple. Peter is the one who does the healing. Peter is the one who's speaking. But it makes very clear that Peter and John are both there. In Acts 8, 14-25, when uh, they hear that there's the, the gospel spread of the Samaritans, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit, Peter and John go down from Jerusalem to Samaria. 
In Galatians 2 and verse 9, John is attested by Paul to being one of the pillars, Peter and James and John. And so he remains, has very high standing in the church there, and among Christians. And this is what we see about John as the Apostles. That's it. Otherwise, he's just with the rest of the Apostles. And so what we can see from there is that he's, he's very okay with this role where he's basically the sidekick. He is going with Peter. Peter is going to be doing the majority of the, of the speaking and teaching. But John's right there, and John's okay with that. Now, when it comes to how we are familiar with John the Son of Zebedee as Christians, we are most familiar with him as the author of the Gospel of John, of three letters of John, and the Revelation of John. There are some who believe that John wrote these in the 60s. But the best evidence suggests that he would have written them later, 85 to 95. Now, we have to admit that some in antiquity doubted that the author of 2nd and 3rd John is the same as the author of the Gospel in 1st John. Eusebius mentioned such things in ecclesiastical history. But the literary and thematic continuity among the three letters is very great. Uh, and that's why we believe it's the same source. And Justin Martyr, among others, attests that John is the one who saw the Revelation. The Gospel of John tells us the story of Jesus, but it's in a way very distinct from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus focuses on, sorry, John focuses on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem primarily. He uh, focuses on specific signs and also includes a lot more of the discourses between Jesus and his disciples. First John is written to Christians to encourage them in their faith. He warns against the Gnostic heresies that are developing. He assures them of their standing before God. The second John is written to warn against association with Gnostic teachers. And third John is written as a letter to commend Demetrius and to warn about Diotrephes' behavior. Revelation is a vision of Jesus given to John by God in the Spirit, and it describes what Christians would experience at the hands of the Romans in terms of all these images drawn from the history of the people of God. The period of history afterward, the judgment, and life and the resurrection are all in view. So John is seeing the things that Christians will suffer and endure, but how God is going to get to victory, and there will be this time of, in the millennium, and then soon after that the Lord is going to return. Millennium being a very long period of time, uh, which has proven to be longer than 1,000 years. Now these are very different genres. Uh, no author in Scripture covers as many genres as John, as an evangelist, a letter writer, and having seen an apocalypse. But what's interesting is even though they're very different genres, there's a lot of continuity in the theme and the message of what is being said. John roots his authority by which he speaks of his witness of the word of life in Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, it's worth noting that John does not even identify himself at the beginning of, of his letter. He's the elder to in second Peter, in second John and third John. And in first John he just begins that which was from the beginning, which we have which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John begins his, le his, his uh, letter there just by attesting to the fact that he experienced the word of life. He saw him, he, he, he touched him, he heard him. Um, that is the basis upon which he speaks. Um, 
he wants people to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he bears witness that these are the things that he saw and he experienced, and he understands how important it is to share the story of those experiences so that others who did not have that luxury may yet still know. John has a very high Christology. What that means is that he has a very elevated view of Jesus as God the Son and the Son of God. Jesus is the Word that was with God and who was God. Most of the declarations about Jesus' divinity come out of John's writing. Uh, where Jesus himself says things like, Before Abraham was, I am, in John 7, 53. Uh, 58. Um, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, in John 10, 30. Um, so many of, of these declarations. But yet also, emphasizes Jesus' bodily nature. Of all the authors, it's John who is the most explicit in 1 John 4, 5, and in 2 John, that you have to confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He understood the, the dangers of the Gnosticizing tendency. So in the same person, we have the highest Christology in terms of Jesus' divinity and also Jesus' humanity. And this would be something that was impressed upon Christians for generations afterward. Love, of course, is a prominent theme. Uh, John 3.16 comes from the pen of John the Apostle. First uh, John 4, 7-21, where John, again, makes discourse rooting everything in God's love for us, manifest in Jesus dying on the cross as the ultimate example of love and the basis upon which we are to love one another. There's also these themes of belief in life. He writes so that we may believe, that we may have eternal life, that this is the life which is in Jesus so on and so forth. A lot of people thought that John's almost uh, Greek in his speak thinking, but in a lot of ways the Old Testament is never far away. Through John, along with Matthew, is the one who makes the most appeals to quotations of the Old Testament in the Gospel. Uh, a lot of times, if you're paying attention, John has all kinds of Old Testament allusions. Uh, John 2, Jesus in the temple, as the temple, of his body in Psalm 69 being thrown in. The the whole scene in John chapter 20 of Jesus coming out of the of Jesus' uh, resurrection uh, looks to the tomb as almost the new tabernacle. And Jesus as the high priest, having set aside his claws, having done the work of the sin offering. Uh, there's a, a, a whole level of subtext there. And of course, that doesn't even begin to talk about uh, John 6 with the Passover. Uh, Jesus is a bread of life in Deuteronomy 8. And God, having fed the Israelites man in the wilderness, so they would know that no one lives by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. In Revelation 4-22, through 22, uh, it's the final examination of the Bible in many ways, because there's so many illustrations of the judgments of God and the hope of the people of God. Uh, mostly rooted from Old Testament examples and illustrations. But what we see in all of these letters is that John has this very great care that people believe that Jesus is the Christ, and he upholds the truth of what God has done in Christ. He writes his gospel, as we said in John 20, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. Uh, John cares for beliefs. He wants them to have fellowship with him. He wants them, listen, little children, guard yourselves from idols at the end of First John. Just that, that terminology, little children. Very tender care. It's not dismissive. It's not, it's not intended to be patronizing. It's, just, it, it's really showing deep, abiding love. 
But he has to write these things because there are these Gnostic teachers that are tearing apart the church, and he has to stand firm for the truth. It's not just, we love you because we love you, and no matter uh, what you may say or do, we'll accept you for who you are no matter what. It's, I love you, and I love you this so much, I don't want you falling for this, which is actually against Christ. And, just as Jesus promised, John would drink from the cup that he would drink, and was baptized with the baptism that he experienced. He was, in Revelation 1 and verse 9, on Patmos exiled because of holding firm to the witness of Jesus. Patmos has no sources of water. It's an island where you can see the land of what we call Turkey or Asia Minor from it, but it has no natural water source. Uh, we know from Pliny and Tacitus that Romans would banish people who uh, were participating in various superstitions uh, on places like Patmos at will. And so that is why it's completely unsurprising that this happened. And in the Revelation, John envisions further suffering for the people of God until the judgment would come upon those who persecute them. Now, according to our best understanding, he dies around the year 95 in Ephesus, perhaps the only apostle to die of natural causes. We see this in Irenaeus and Tertullian as they went to Ephesus. Uh, there's further claims that John trained Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna, and Polycarp would go on to train Irenaeus. And there's stories of how John resisted the heretic Serenthus, and when they happened to cross paths at a, at a bath, uh, John made sure to leave so that he would had no, was nowhere near uh, good old Serenthus. And this is what we see about John, the son of Zebedee, in Scripture and in some traditions. So what can we learn about him? Well, he's, as a disciple, bold and impetuous. And he's very much on the side of judgment. Now, Jesus pushes off this instinct at the time, and it's very fashionable to talk about the fact that John matured into the apostle of love because of the emphasis of this scene in his writings. But even when you read Revelation, 1 John, things of that nature, he has strong words against the Antichrists and the condemnation against the Gnostics. And so it shows that that son of thunder may not be too far away. And as it was with Peter, so it is with John. The tendencies remain, and there probably was maturity and development in how they got exercised, especially if we consider that as he's running around, John is still a teenager, barely out of it. But it shows us that there is a time for a son of thunder. But the person who is the son of thunder needs to be very careful about how that thunder is exercised. As an apostle, John is a very prominent person. He's moved from fourth to second. But it was the second. He was second to Peter, and it seems to be Peter's companion in ministry. John doesn't seem to chafe at the role, though. He's willing to serve as he is able to serve as the second. In the Lord's wisdom, he's in Mark 6 and verse 7, he sent out his disciples two by two. And so therefore, if there's one who's going to take the lead in preaching and teaching, there's going to be the second one who's not going to take that lead. But his presence is still invaluable. And that's why it's absolutely true that we always need preachers and teachers in the Lord's vineyard. But there's also a great need for that second, for that person to go with the preacher and teacher out into the world to proclaim the message of God and to serve. And of course, John primarily defines himself in terms of experiencing the word of life. He, of all the disciples, saw Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And everything he says he frames in that light that he's bearing witness to Jesus so others can come to the knowledge he has to believe in Jesus as he does and to share in fellowship with him and with God. It sounds simple, but the logic prevails. We do well to heed his witness, to communicate that witness to others, 
so we can sh they we and they can share with John in fellowship and all of us be in fellowship with God in Christ. And so that's John, the son of thunder, the disciple whom Jesus loved. May we seek to follow the Lord Jesus just according to the witness of John and the other apostles and to abide in his love always. We're again glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged and learn a bit about John, the son of Zebedee. If we can be of any service, if you'd like to talk more about this, if you'd like to talk about becoming a Christian or about some other issue, maybe you just need to talk or have a prayer request. If there's any way I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, theverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if you are interested in learning more about the Church of Christ in Venice, uh, maybe you want to check us out or you'd like some more information, you can find out more about us online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We are also on many forms of social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.